I'm John Panther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From Classical WETA in Washington, we take you behind the music. From stars to planets, space has been an influence for many composers. In this episode, Nicole Lacroix joins me as we dive into Gustav Holst's The Planets, which may have a different meaning than you would assume. We explore the origins of this famous work and its unique ending with samples from a legendary recording. Nicole, I want to play something for you, and I'm wondering if this sounds as creepy to you as it does to me. That's a weird sound, right? Feels like you're lost in space. These are radio waves that have been emitted from... Saturn. Apparently Saturn does a lot of this. It shoots out radio waves, radio emissions, and this Cassini space probe flying by picked that up. I think it's just natural phenomena. There's no aliens trying to send us a message, but it's a terrifying sound, isn't it? Because it's it's far out. It's infinity. It's nothingness. Right. And in this episode, we are talking about The Planets by Gustav Holst, which these aren't actually musical descriptions of the physical planets themselves, but here we're dealing with the gods that they're named after. And we're going to hear musical examples. And some of these examples, like from Saturn and Holst's work, are just as terrifying as those radio emissions. Now, a little bit on Gustav Holst real quick. He was born in 1874 in Cheltenham, England. His father, Adolf, was a pianist, and that's how his mother met. She was um, studying piano, too. She unfortunately died young in his um, childhood, but he actually played violin and piano growing up, as well as composing. But he had like a problem with his nerves, his nervous system, and it was hard to continue playing piano and violin. So he started playing trombone. He actually played it professionally. And I think with that, you're making all the um, notes with your lips, and then you're using really your arm, your um, yeah, your arm and your wrist to manipulate the the slides. So that was um, kind of his own career path, playing trombone too. He took it up, he said, because he thought it might help with his asthma. Wow, which was kind of interesting. He that was interesting. always in poor health throughout his life. Yeah. yeah. So this work. The Planets, we're going to listen to a legendary recording. It's the Boston Symphony Orchestra with conductor William Steinberg, recorded in 1971. But what is kind of, there's a little bit of a more astrological origin story here with Holst, isn't there, with this piece? Apparently, he was really depressed after the failure of some of his pieces. So he went off with some friends on vacation in 1913 and got the idea of writing a suite of seven instrumental pieces, orchestral pieces, based on astrological signs or the planets that ruled astrological signs. And uh, so we have, at first he called it seven orchestral pieces, uh, but uh, then changed them according, the titles according to the, uh, the planets. So we have Mars, Venus, Mercury, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. And we can go right from the top with Mars, the bringer of war, the first movement in this, in which he did write this between 1914 and 1916. The first public performance in um, November of 1920, years later, with the London Symphony Orchestra and Albert Coates conducting. But Mars, the bringer of war, of course, World War I also being a deal around this time. When you listen to this, 
it sounds terrifying. And people thought it was actually a reaction to war or really displaying it. But he actually wrote it beforehand. The, the war even started. But let's listen to the opening of this piece. There's this big kind of ominous growing line um, in in the winds. and But below with the strings, you hear this percussive sound. And that is actually, it's in their part, and it says, Kononyu Batuto. They're actually hitting the string. They're hitting the strings with the back of their bow, the wooden part. And not all string players like this because bows can cost tens of thousands of dollars. I mean, a lot of money. And you don't exactly want to take that and start hitting the back of it. Uh, So people may use a cheaper bow, one they may use for outside concerts um, to do this. But it is this kind of warlike, ominous growing of sound, isn't it? I see the stormtroopers from Star Wars. Every time I hear this piece, I see these these guys dressed in white robot costumes just going off <laughs> to war, ready to kill someone. Well, it's, it sounds exactly like that. It's very intimidating. And one really intimidating um, part of this, he uses a lot of instruments here. And one in particular, he adds, is the tenor tuba. Now, there's a lot of ways to describe this, but basically think a really small tuba. Today, this little solo that he wrote for this in this opening movement is often played, almost always played, on euphonium, which is, again, you can think of like a really small tuba. But what's interesting about this recording is that Chester Schmitz, the principal tuba of the Boston Symphony at this time, he decided he's just going to play it on his F tuba, an instrument we kind of use for solo works and some smaller orchestral pieces. But it's a big instrument, and it's kind of unwieldy, and he's playing this solo, which is meant for a different instrument, a higher one, and one that actually a trombone player would be playing. But let's take a listen to this played on the tuba. Now, Chester has a massive sound. You can hear there's not even a mic near him. You can hear it actually bouncing off the back of the hall in Boston. This is actually considered to be one of the greatest halls in the world. Now let's listen to how it's most often played. That's a different sound, right? It sure is. A little less Stormtrooper. Right. I mean, and there's nothing wrong with this. It's a great recording, um, but that's often how it's played. And Chester is the only one I've seen who's actually done that, played it on this big tuba where it's kind of not usually written for within the orchestra. But the solo continues um, a little bit later on and gets higher and higher and higher. And you can hear he's underneath the trumpet, but he, when you listen to Chester's playing, I mean, it can be deafening. It's a huge sound, and it's, of course, you know, playing this fortissimo, very, very, very loud. Now, you're talking about stormtroopers, right, being kind of intimidating. Um, the end of this movement is just as intimidating. 
think about that sound when you're in, it's in 1920 and you're hearing that. Of course, there's scary music, but that's in, that's really intimidating, isn't it? If people are living through or have lived through a terrible, terrible war, can you imagine how that would hit them in the in the guts? Uh, Sir Adrian Bolt, who conducted a, a partial performance uh, in eight, in 1918, said that for him, Mars showed the stupidity of war. Exactly. That's also something Hulse was was bringing about, just how unnecessary and just how how evil it all it all is. But Again, there with that recording, it's Symphony Hall and it's empty and it has this huge reverb and sound from the orchestra. Now, thankfully, we go from Mars, the bringer of war, to Venus, the bringer of peace. Imogen Holtz, uh, Gustav's daughter, quote, quotes him as saying, I had the whole of Mars fixed in my mind before the war. The only planet I was quite certain I was thinking about in 1914 was Venus the bringer of peace. And what a gorgeous opening, that sense of spaciousness that you hear with the horns. It's like the dawning of hope, isn't it? It is. And if you think about war, the trumpet or the bugle, often you know a sign or something to signal for something in a battle, here it's the horn kind of acting the same way for peace. It's just alone by itself kind of calling for this peace. And maybe even a little bit of uh, nostalgia for the people who have died. Right, right. Uh, then there's a gorgeous and very famous violin solo. He describes Venus so beautifully as a sort of a cool blue planet. And later on, you hear the flutes and the harps and the celesta. And it's a beautiful, beautiful movement, followed by Mercury, the winged messenger. Now, Mercury is the, the Roman god of communication, commerce, and finance. And he was a messenger. And he had actually had wings on his cap that would have him able to go around, I guess, and deliver these, these messages. But Hulse brings that into the music, too. Um, let's listen to the opening. Now, I imagine Mercury was mostly a normal, um, full-sized, grown adult, but here it makes him sound very small, almost like Tinkerbell flittering and fluttering about, bouncing off this and and that, um, delivering messages. And this is actually the shortest of all the planets here um, in this piece. And going from there, there is this line that gets passed around from section to section or principal musician to principal musician. 
So that line being passed around, and it sh- I guess it should be said also, um, popping out there is Principal Trumpet, Roger Voizan, and before that in the Venus movement, um, Joseph Silverstein, the concertmaster of the orchestra at that time. But I love Mercury, how it's just, it's bouncing around, and it's fun and it's exciting, and then almost without notice, it's gone. And then that's, and then it's over. And we'll talk about how Holst makes all these planets sound different and Jupiter right after this. Classical Breakdown is made possible by Classical WETA. Join us for the music anytime, day or night. To listen live, just go to our website, classicalweta.org, or download our app. It's free in the App Store. All right, Nicole, as you know, Holst played the trombone. That makes him kind of, you're in the back row of the orchestra, but you really have a great spot to be listening to everything that's happening around you in the, in the back. You're often not playing every single thing. You're sitting, you're counting rests before you play, and then you can kind of hear how the instruments fit together or how they, they, um, they don't fit together. And in this piece, Holst has really found a way to make every single planet sound individual. But I feel like he also continues on what Stravinsky was doing and other composers before with all these mixed meters, the timing, how it changes sometimes from theme to theme or these really fast rising scales and things that just kind of pop out of nowhere. And uh, Jupiter, the bringer of jollity, is a really good example of that because not only was he listening to Stravinsky and Schoenberg and Wagner and so forth, he was also influenced by one of his really good friends, Rayfon Williams, and that whole English folk school. And in this piece, you hear that. Jupiter, the bringer of jollity, starts out with violins playing and then horns and timpani. And in fact, he uses two timpanists so that they can play all the notes in the theme. It's fantastic, isn't it? I mean, it's so different, but so fulfilling. It is. And if you think about um, Jupiter was the Roman god of sky and thunder, that's that big kind of thunderclap that happens when the rest of the orchestra enters after saying this. the violins are creating this kind of bed of, I don't know, crashing waves or something, and then the theme on top. And yet it's it's very British beefsteak and beer sounding. Oh, yeah. If there's, um, an, if there's a movement that is English... This is it. And then you get into the English countryside and perhaps a a lovely little Norman church. And I think if you're English, you might be standing right now. Either for a soccer team that's, right. <laughs> or for I vow to thee, my country. He, he uh, later set, uh, set the words to this tune. So something very different again. Saturn, the bringer of old age. And I'm, you know, I'm so sad because Saturn is my ruling planet as a Capricorn. <laughs> 
This is a terrifying one, isn't it? Saturn, the bringer of old age. And if you think about the Roman god that's with Saturn, um, the god of agriculture and seasons, hence the passage of, of time. This movement is terrifying in a different way from Mars in that Mars is, if you think about it with war, it's this outward, destruct, uh, outward portrayal of violence and destruction. Here, it's an inner struggle of aging. Parts of it are absolutely beautiful, but parts of it also capture this loneliness, this being alone and kind of almost terror of, of aging. And you can hear the passage of time in some of the music where it sounds like a huge pendulum just swinging back and forth. And it kind of feels like you're in a Salvador Dali painting and you can't escape with this sound. And going on from there, there's these soft spots, soft sections like this. And then there's also what I also would imagine is terrifying is just this confusion um, or disease that happens in old age. And I think it's portrayed in the music in this kind of striking angular way that is so different from Jupiter, where we have that English countryside anthem. Now he's using um, notes that seem to not go together to create this sound. there at the end and in the middle with those rhythm changes that just puts a whole new spin a whole new angle on it that it's a different sound but it's it's so different from a lot of the other movements and it's almost like the the clock the pendulum has gone crazy there right that's it's a good starting like the spring to beat pops you out. up yes yeah. it starts to beat you up it reminds me of another englishman dylan thomas or i guess welsh right do not go gentle into that good night old age should burn and rave at close of day and he never did get to old age he died at 59 Holst, yes yes from the bringer of old age we have uranus the magician it begins with trumpets and trombones, then tubas, and then timpani. That's so sinister. <laughs> it's sinister, but it's a little mischievous, too, who's hiding behind that music. Right. <laughs> It's humorous and clumsy. There's a little march. It's a little bit vulgar. Maybe they're making fun of the name. And it sounds a little bit like Dukas Sorcerer's Apprentice. You can kind of see Mickey Mouse. Right. It's Fantasia if Fantasia went very differently. And this would have definitely been familiar to Holst as a Sorcerer's Apprentice was composed in 1897. Here's that section you're talking about where it really sounds like it.
It's a nice little broomstick that is torn to shreds at the end by like a 200-foot-tall figure. And I love the way the piece ends with an organ glissando. That's just genius. And now, Neptune the Mystic. Yes, Neptune the Mystic. Um, in Roman gods, the god of fresh water and sea. And I like that this one is also the god of horses. Yes, he has little horses with him, I guess, going across the fresh water and the sea. But um, that's one thing I really like about him. This is actually a planet, if we want to talk about planets, that we actually didn't figure out by just looking at it. They used mathematical prediction to kind of discover this planet. It wasn't looked at right with a telescope or um, anything like that. And I think if there's one movement that could also be describing a physical planet. I think this one is it. It's very gestural. It's very calm. It seems like there's a long time with no real theme or melody. You're um, kind of just in this vast expanse. And I think if you look at Neptune through a telescope, you you know when you see an image through a telescope, it's kind of wavy. You get that effect by the voices, a woman's chorus that Holst adds into this piece as well. But let's listen to this kind of ethereal kind of sound in this movement. And I feel like I'm looking at something very, very far away. And he also adds in this piece the woman's chorus. And they come in at the end, and they are not on stage. They're off stage. Um, The easiest thing is if they're right off stage and they have the doors open and they're singing and you can hear them through the doors. This is also a piece that ends by fading out. And if you think of, um, I don't know, the end of a piece that just kind of decrescendos, gets softer, and then it ends... That's different than here. Here, the singers keep singing, and the doors are slowly shut until you just can't hear them anymore, and then they and then they stop. But they bring this sound that still to keep going with it because it's this is how I hear it. When the choir sings, I get this wavy sound that if you're seeing this kind of blue planet out very far in the distance. And it does give it all together this kind of mystic vibe, doesn't it? Like you're uh, going off to infinity and you don't really know what awaits you. Right. You've left your spacecraft and now you're floating in one direction for eternity. Hopefully you have a tether. <laughs> right. He would have made a fantastic uh, movie scorer. Oh, definitely. I mean, because it's so visual. And when I'm listening to this, I can't help but think sometimes... Um, Interstellar. I don't know if you saw that movie. I was thinking about that. And as you're reading Absolutely. that poem, I'm thinking Interstellar. There's that real, he had a way of capturing something, its own essence, and then having it be something completely different movement to movement or piece to piece here. And he really uses the, the women's chorus beautifully. He was a teacher for most of his career in women's schools. 
the St. Paul School. He taught there for 30 years, and he revolutionized teaching women music. And using them there to great effect, fading out until it's all over, and then hopefully an applause is held in a concert, and then it, it breaks out. But I absolutely love this music, as I understand you do too, Nicole. It made his name. It was his breakout piece, and it made him so famous, and he apparently hated to be famous. He would put out little postcards that said, I don't do autographs. <laughs> wow. And the thing is, sometimes composers, they don't want one piece to be super famous because it just ends up defining them. What's funny is Neptune's the last one. There's no Pluto. Pluto was discovered after this point, but before Holst died and he refused to write anything for it. Other composers have written one for Pluto or asteroids or anything like that. Um, so you can find recordings of those online too. Now, I love this piece, and I think you should definitely listen to this recording with the Boston Symphony, but others too, because they're all going to be very, very different in terms of when I get you know very nerdy with how where are the mics placed, how is an engineer, that kind of thing. But just even the instruments and, and the sound that the conductor wants, it's all um, very different. So listening to multiple recordings always gives you a great idea of a piece. Not to mention going to a live concert if you have the opportunity. Absolutely. If you can see this live, you need to. So do you have anything else for the planets, Nicole? That's it. But, you know, I kind of wonder what he would have done for Pluto <laughs> had Me he too. been so inclined. Me too. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown. For more information on things we talked about in this episode, like maybe what is a euphonium, go to the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. And if you have ideas for episodes, comments, or just want to tell me why you love classical music, send me an email at classicalbreakdown at weta.org. I'm John Banther. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown from Classical WETA.